Hello, women. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. And for those of you that are new, Le Vital Core Salon is the virtual hangout for frazzled type A's, imposters, and activity addicts. I am your host, Kara Martin Snyder. Sometimes I call myself a salonnière after the old school French women of the 18th century that held conversations about a variety of different topics and tried to inspire, educate, and instigate other women. And so that's where that title comes from, if you've ever been wondering why I use the word salonnière, which is not a real common word, and most people are probably like, what the hell is she talking about? But that's the story. Anyways, I also just want to remind you that this podcast features adult women having sometimes potty-mouthed conversation. So it's usually with intention. We're probably not going to drop F-bomb, 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 F-bomb just until our heads fall off. But want you to know that in advance because if you have little ones or people that won't appreciate that kind of French, then it's probably time to plug in your headphones. And each episode, my job, and I take this job pretty seriously, is to introduce you to a modern woman who is not letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. These are women that are across all different industries doing radically different things. I want you to have different contexts. Like, this isn't a show for just music folks. This isn't a show for just attorneys. This isn't a show for accountants. I want you to hear from women from all different walks of life and different experiences and different perspectives so that we can learn from them. And there's a lot to learn today. And if you've peeked at the show notes online already before you're listening, you know that I am talking to Magnolia Levy, who is an attorney and a founding partner at Lepretto and Levy in Manhattan. And she's going to talk about all of the work that she does in matrimonial and family law and what that really means. And Magnolia is someone that has been in my circles for ages. Her husband, Scott, and I actually started our first jobs out of college, or at least I believe it was Scott's first job. It was definitely mine at PricewaterhouseCoopers way on back when. So I've known Scott for years and you know, over the years, like I've been at parties where Magnolia and I were both at, or maybe concerts and things like that. So we definitely know each other. And what's so interesting, and I think what I experienced doing this interview with Magnolia, is sometimes we forget how awesome the people that are arm's length in front of us are. Like, here's someone that, you know, I've, I've definitely spent time with her over the years, but there was so much of her story that's incredibly powerful and, and things that we can learn from and understand how our stories make up who we are. And Magnolia came and shows up really honestly, and it's such a great reminder. You might be in the company of just radically cool, smart, and intelligent women and only know the tip of their awesomeness, like the very top of the iceberg of their awesomeness. So keep that in mind 
as you go out and you're out socializing with people or getting to know people or maybe look at your coworkers in a different way or that friend of friend that you sometimes see at parties because it it really may lead to just such a joyous and and wonderful conversation where you can learn so much so I'm in deep gratitude to Magnolia for being part of this conversation. Before you hear that I'm talking to an attorney and me as like a former CPA and begin to already start to snooze, it is not going to be the conversation that I thought it was going to be and it's certainly not going to be the conversation you might think it's going to be. And so stick with us because we are going to talk about so many things in terms of what it's like when you're afraid to take a leap, just simple self-care and how it sort of emerges. We talk about a lot about intuition and trusting that intuition and what it looks like and how Magnolia experiences it and what it's done for her and how it's served her which I think was such a fascinating conversation. So stick around, meet Magnolia, and voila, here's our interview. Hey, Magnolia, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day. I I know you are a busy woman. You are an attorney and a partner at Lopretto and Levy, which is a top-rated boutique law firm in Manhattan. And your specialty is actually matrimonial and family law. How did you get to this point in your career? How did you know you were meant to be an attorney? So I don't think it's a decision that I made overnight. Um, There came a point certainly where I thought, I'm interested in law and I want to go to law school. Um, I ended up working at a uh, mid-sized law firm in Manhattan after I graduated. And I sort of fell into matrimonial work. I was in the litigation department and um, we got a matrimonial case and I worked on it closely with the partner who brought it in and I liked it. And I said to him, we should do more of these. So we did. And together, over the course of 12 years, we built a pretty significant matrimonial department. Um, And then I left to uh, basically start my own firm. It's a little bit deeper than just falling into it. Part of what I do is uh, not only divorce, but I do uh, pre-marriage planning, which includes prenuptial agreements. And that, for me, has a particularly personal Side because when I was 12, my mother uh, married my stepfather and she signed a prenuptial agreement. And she signed it without reading it, without having representation. She signed it the day before her wedding and basically didn't know what she was signing. And one of the things that she signed away were her rights um, to take a part of his estate, her husband's estate, upon his death. Uh, that is an area that's frequently covered in prenuptial agreements, and she signed it away. And fast forward two years, he died quite suddenly. And although he had updated his will uh, to take care of my mother and to take care of me, um, he had not had it properly witnessed. So my mom challenged the prenuptial agreement. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, which is the 
highest court in the state uh, of Connecticut, and she lost. And that had a pretty profound effect on my life. I mean, I was at that point, I was 12 when he died. This probably would have been resolved a lot by the time I was 14 or 15. But the day-to-day of my life changed drastically. Um, they, we had to sell the, the house we had in, in Connecticut. My mother, who had sold her store and stopped working, had to figure out how to support us. Um, I remember waking up in the morning and she would have the New York Times out. And this is back in the days when you had all of the stocks and their uh, their activity from the day before listed in pages and pages in the New York Times. And she was sitting there teaching herself how to follow stocks and how to invest in the stock market. And I saw firsthand really the effect that these kinds of marital agreements can have on a whole family's life. And when I started becoming interested in in matrimonial and family law as a lawyer, one thing that became really important to me was the concept of advising my clients. And I really do try to approach what I do from that perspective, and, and it's informed by my own personal story, but I really think I have, I know I have an ethical obligation to counsel my clients, but I really want to make sure they understand what they're doing. And there are times when they might be waiving rights that the law would otherwise give them, and that's fine, but the point is they have to understand what their rights would be, you know, if in the event they decided to pursue them. So that's my, that's my little story, but I think it, it really helps. It, it makes me really love what I do, and it makes me invested in what I do because I sort of, I've been on the other side of the table. Magnolia, I've, I've known you for years, and I mean through friends of friends, and really thank you for sharing that. I had no idea that was your story. So these podcasts are sometimes so fascinating to me. I mean, your story is so powerful. Like, how did you witness in your mom's turnaround of this really painful and scary situation? How do you think that shaped you in some ways? You know, my mother is remarkable in many ways, but in particular, she really is um, a warrior. And what I mean by that is she doesn't allow self-doubt or pity um, or depression to creep in to her view of the world. So when these things happened, um, her focus was picking herself up and putting one foot in front of the other. And that to me in and of itself, I would say sort of created my outlook of the world because at this very dark time when it felt as though the roof was caving in and the rug was being pulled from under us, I had a rock, you know, and I sort of looked to her to see that everything ultimately would be okay. And whether or not she had any inner doubts um, that it would, and I don't believe she did because that's just not the way that she views the world. Um, I think that as a child, seeing your parent calm and cool and focused and just picking up and putting one foot in front of the other uh, was, is instrumental. I really try, at least in terms of the relationships I have 
outside of work and also my relationships with my clients, I really try to pull back and give some perspective. You know, this too shall pass. This is a phase. This, you will be on the other side of this. Um, this is not the end. Which has to be so powerful to the people that you're working with because, correct me if I'm wrong here, most of the clients that you are working with are either doing some marriage planning, so thinking about a prenup or have, have just been served a prenup, or are contemplating divorce. Is that, that's the bulk of your work? Correct. I would say, uh, and then within that, I would say 90% of what I do is divorce. What do typical cases look like? And I know that I use the word typical and you're probably zoning right in on that one. <laughs> But I mean, just so people listening get a context of what your job is sort of like, what what do cases look like? What does that feel like? What's a typical work week feel like? Um, so, well, I think those are sort of, those are two different questions. Typical cases are people who've been married and who either have children or don't have children and want to separate and get divorced. And that can happen... Um, in a friendly setting, I, you know, I mediate. Uh, that can also happen where people are really doing their best to be on their best behavior and trying to work things out amicably, but it's a little tough and maybe we're not in court, but we are following the steps we might otherwise follow if we were before a judge. And then there are the parties that really can't reach a, an amicable resolution and those we're in court and we have a judge and issues in, that arise in connection with the divorce get resolved and handled by the judge. Um, in terms of what my typical work week looks like, it's hard to say what typical is. You're right. I honed in on that word. <laughs> you know, I, I'm in court. I'm in meetings. I'm doing a fair amount of the back office work, meaning I'm drafting motions. I'm putting together documents in connection with financial disclosure that has to happen and drafting agreements. Um, that's what I'm doing in the office. Now, I don't know if that's what, what you meant when you asked what my work week looks like, but that's what's happening when I get to the office. Yeah, I think it's important for people listening to just have a context of, you know, I, I think as soon as you say attorney, people are just like, oh, they're in court. Right. Like, and I know from years of being mm -hmm. an accountant that as soon as I would say I was a CPA, people would talk to me about their taxes. And I was like, you know, I don't do <laughs> anything related to that whatsoever. Right. Like, you know, I farm out my own. <laughs> right. So I, right. I, I think I just want to make sure uh, that we're right. giving a clear and accurate description of, of what you do so people understand the context of our discussion today. Right. So I think maybe going back to what I had said earlier, I really view myself as a counselor. Um, and so that me and, and my clients largely are in crisis because when the end of their marriage comes, uh, they are filled with questions and emotions. And so my job is not only to counsel them on the law, but also hold their hand and, and he, listen to them and hear what their concerns are and see if I can make sure that they feel heard, uh, but also kind of steer them in the right direction. Um, you know, somebody who's getting divorced might be furious that uh, their spouse asked them you know, or served them with a 
12-page demand for detailed financial documents. You know, okay. But then, you know, you look at it and you say, well, look, there are a whole bunch of other things that didn't happen. We're not in court. This is pretty standard stuff. I hear what you're saying. You must be frustrated. Um, And I try to really just kind of bring them through uh, the, the anxiousness that they're feeling. Um, there are, I also have clients who are in the middle of um, custodial disputes with their, with their spouses. And those oftentimes have issues that come up that are emergent. My husband said he's keeping my son over the weekend and he's supposed to return him at 5 o'clock on Friday. What do I do? You know, those kinds of, or my sons came home and said that daddy did this or that. Uh, what do I do? So a lot of it is you know, being able to be accessible and address issues as they come up. Got it. So, I mean, not only are you doing those standard lawyerly things that people would expect you would be doing, you know, at a desk, on the phone, in meetings, maybe going to court, but you also have to be um, available for these sort of emergency situations that might not happen between nine and five, Monday through Friday. Is that correct? Exactly. Like, we manage crises, crises also. I can imagine that when people come to you, they are quite distraught. I think there are so many similarities about the work that we do. And one thing that I find with my clients is that they wait until it's super excruciatingly painful to reach out for help. And as part of that, you know, sometimes it's like they're in the wrong relationship or whatnot. Where do you find most people that finally reach out to you are at on that continuum of like, yeah, I'm kind of unhappy in my marriage to we're ready to kill each other? That's a good question. Um, I think by the time that they reach out to me, they've already acknowledged that something is broken in their relationship. And it's about informing themselves uh, as to what their rights and obligations would be uh, with respect to their spouse or their children if they were to separate. Um, It's interesting because I focus less on the why in terms of why the relationship isn't working or what you can do to make it better. Uh, For my purposes, I mean, and for, for what I do in court, fault is no longer an issue. I mean, that's not, you don't need grounds to get divorced in New York State anymore. Um, so really it becomes about, okay, you've decided, you've reached this crossroads, you've decided you want to separate, what do we do? How do we get you there? How do we get you um, the most favorable outcome based on what, what it is you want to achieve? Do you mostly represent men or do you mostly represent women or is it pretty split? It really depends. Depends on, you know, the cycle of the moon. I'm making that up, but (laughs) there's no rhyme or reason to who I represent. I remember I had a client come in and ask me that same question that you just asked me. Do I represent mostly men or women or a mix? And I said, represent a mix. And he said to me, um, well, do you think it's an issue for you to represent a man? And my response was, well, do you think it's an issue for you to be represented by a woman? 
I kind of, I, I tried to flip it on him. It was such a funny question to ask. I mean, ultimately he engaged me. So, you know, we found our common ground, but it was, it was a funny question to ask. So, I mean, what he was getting at was that you couldn't possibly separate yourself from being a woman and also being an attorney. Maybe, (laughs) maybe I didn't delve too deeply uh, into the question, but also, you know, it's interesting. Some people, some men want a woman to represent them because they feel it gives them a softer edge. It looks, you know, they see that it has some optical effect on their case. Uh, likewise, some women feel they need a, uh, an aggressive man to represent them. I think it is largely driven by personality. I think that's how you find the right lawyer for you. It's 90% personality. You find somebody who feels good to you, who feels like they're a truth teller, who makes you feel secure, and that's how you find the right person. Got it. And I'm curious, too, because you're experiencing both representing men and women, what have you seen, and again, this is totally generalized, but what have you seen as differences in how the genders approach divorce proceedings? I'm not so sure there's a difference. I think ultimately people want what's what's best for their children. Um, I think that oftentimes what's ultimately best for the children is different from what mom or dad feels is best for the kids. Sometimes people develop a blind spot there. And I think that people generally approach the split of finances the same way. Um, They don't see one side versus the other being more or less conciliatory. I think they probably, I think the answer is they, I I don't really see a difference. Got it. There might be a, you know, a reputation that men are more aggressive and wanting to keep large, you know, a larger portion of the pool of marital assets, but I've seen women be just as aggressive. Um, And I've seen men also, you know, want to do right by their spouses and say, you know, look, it's not about money for me. I want this to be fair and good and I want us to walk away feeling comfortable. So I don't, I, I don't think that there's really a difference. Got it. Got it. And in your answer, you mentioned something really interesting about blind spots. You know, that you're, as a... Mm-hmm. As an attorney, you're looking for them. You're looking to protect your clients from blind spots. And it sounds like there's also all this emotional stuff that's bubbling up as well. In the work that I do, I'm often hired to highlight people's blind spots. But the people that you're working with may not necessarily be looking for that from you in certain ways, especially like on the emotional level. How do you deliver that difficult news or how do you deliver those blind spots to people and how do you make sure they're open to them in the process? I deliver them tactfully. Um, I, I, I try to use language that I think they are receptive to. Um, you know, have you considered, I know you've said that 
really, you know, that you want Johnny to go to the best private school in the city. Have you considered that Johnny may not be ultimately successful there? I mean, have you considered that Johnny may have some learning disabilities that might set, you know, marginalize him there or make him feel marginalized. I try to sort of shift the angle a little bit, um, but it's difficult. And ultimately, at the end of the day, um, I've got to, my job is to advise them. And so if I think that something is not going to result in an outcome that they would believe is favorable or might hamper that end result, then I will be very clear about it. You know, and I, you know, I may be a little bit more careful about how I phrase it up front, but I will get to the point where I I will say, or I may have to say, look, you've engaged me for my advice. My legal advice is this. Of course, the decision is up to you. And I've had clients disregard my decision. Okay. And that's just, that's a little difficult because I think there is, initially at least, the instinct to want to guide them in the way that you think is best. But remember, these are other people's lives. These are other people's children. These are other people's decisions to make. Um, So I really do try to respect that. And how do you keep that that boundary for yourself in those moments? Because I think... I think what you're describing is a parallel in a lot of different situations. I mean, certainly in my work, but I think even in how we relate to one another just on a day-to-day basis, like being careful in those situations. It's hard in part because of the nature of the work that I do with my clients. I'm close to them, right? I see all their lumps and we and it's hard to put up a wall in the event that they do something that is contrary to the advice that you give them. But, you know, it's a good life lesson also. You're not going to be able to control everybody and everything. And so sometimes you have to step back. You say what you need to say, and you step back, and you let it play out, and you deal with the hands that you're dealt Yes. I always joke or it's sometimes I joke, sometimes it's just a straight up mantra in the moment. Like free will is a hell of a thing. <laughs> right, right. And you have to you have to acknowledge it and honor it because otherwise you are fighting a losing battle. You are Sisyphus pushing the boulder <laughs> up the mountain. <laughs> and then getting run over by it over and over and over. Right. <laughs> right. And Magnolia, communication, like really open, direct, and probably some moments empathetic communication is a big part of of your work. As, as people here are listening, I mean, you've just got so much experience in that. What are some lessons that that the listeners could use? or that might be helpful if they find themselves in a moment of conflict? Because it sounds like you're steeping in it most days. I, you know, I think communication and not allowing the resentment to build up is 
critical. I think being honest about the way you're feeling um, and honoring that and whether or not it's rational or irrational, communicating that to your partner is good for a number of reasons. First, you vent and you don't have the, the resentment building up and, and sort of damning your emotional well. And then I think it allows you and your partner to engage in problem solving um, together. And when you get to the other side of a problem, you're stronger. You've accomplished something. You've opened a communication channel. And I think that that at some point in, in, the, in the relationships that I see, um, and certainly in my own personal relationships, that becomes a, a make or break. Yes. So you're talking about when the communication has just gotten to the point where people can't even hear each other anymore. Right. And I think in terms of what I do, at least from a pre-marriage planning perspective, which I'm, and by, I'm referring to prenuptial agreements, I think those, in a perverse way, are an excellent way for a couple that's about to get married and start a life together to have some really hard conversations and basically know that they're going to come through it and still get married and know that they can communicate that way. Things can get a little bit tense and and uncomfortable and they're still going to kiss at the end of the day and, and, and say, I do. I mean, I think that's um, a good example of how disagreements can work in a marriage. You know, a lot of them are caused by financial issues. And to be able to have a frank and uncomfortable conversation about finances uh, and get through it is a great roadmap for the times in your marriage when those issues will come up. And they will come up. Absolutely. Craig and I joke all the time. We're trying to figure out a way to, to do it tactfully and from a place of being compassionate and kind. But I feel like, you know, we look back to when we got married and opened all the cards and the well wishes and the congratulations and wish that maybe like one person had told us your first year of marriage will be the most difficult year of your marriage, or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, in the top five. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because there are so many transitions and so many conversations. And I, you know, I think... I'm a lapsed Catholic, and so, you know, the the option of pre-cana, I mean, had I, had I wanted to go back that route, like, and I definitely thought about that before we got married, like, gee, I'm, I'm not really feeling Catholicism anymore, but that seems like a really good practice for people, like, to go through mm-hmm. and learn to communicate with each other in a different way or talk about you know, deeply held beliefs and, and the stuff that we bring from our own childhood and how that's going to shape the marriage. And so I, I think what you're doing is so important. But here's a question, because I feel like so many people hear the words prenuptial agreement and just immediately get this, like, ick feeling. Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. I think probably because people it as a harbinger of doom you know people think prenup means divorce and he's already or she's already 
worried about protecting uh, what he or she's bringing into the marriage. I mean, I think it just gets a bad rap, as I think, uh, yes, I think it gets a bad rap. And I also think it gets a bad rap because nobody likes to talk about finances. That is a taboo subject. Nobody wants, you know, except in New York where it's totally permissible to ask somebody what they're paying in rent. You know, other than that, (laughs) you don't talk about income. You don't talk about what's in your bank account. You don't ever have that conversation. I remember growing up as a kid, uh, my mom telling me, you never ask about uh, about my stepdad, never ask him about money. You don't discuss money with him. And I thought, okay, that's, you know, that's a lesson I'm going to take with me. You don't discuss money. So all of a sudden, somebody's saying to you, I want to discuss money. And I want to talk about how much you'll get and how much I'll get and what it means and what I keep and what you keep. I mean, that is a really um, vulnerable and off-putting conversation to have particularly at a time when you were thinking about your wedding dress and your party and your honeymoon you're thinking about sort of the fantasy of of the wedding and you want to live in the fantasy and this is forcing you to put on lead boots and have some really hard conversations yes i'm glad you brought up finances it's strange in all my years of of working with women you know, like I said, they're coming to me when they're in more of a contemplative state where, like I said, they're just, they're not feeling happy and they're not feeling right. And they're just feeling like they're kind of stuck. And, you know, it's never about what it is. Like when I start peeling back the layers, you know, sometimes, and I have people like track all sorts of unconventional data. And sometimes it's, you know, I see that there's this like a lot of energy mounting, like my husband drives me nuts about this and that and and whatever. And it's my job to listen. And through that, I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. Let's think about, well, for the next couple of weeks, I want you to be really aware of all the reasons your husband's driving you nuts. And I don't know if I can quantify it in, in too much detail, but I, I would say definitely greater than half the time, maybe even pushing 75% of the time, most of the friction that I hear about is about finances. And it really, like, I've had this happen with handfuls of clients where it's like, so you don't hate your husband, you're just not talking about finances. And every time finances come up, that's when you hate your husband. So which is it? (laughs) Right. Well, right. But I think, you know, it's all, look, People come to me for when the, at the end of their marriage. And maybe what's the straw that breaks the camel's back? It's the affair the husband has. Okay, so let's backtrack. What's, what causes the affair? Well, at some point, the, the people stop talking to each other, right? Why do they stop talking to each other? Because resentment builds. Why is resentment building? Well, it could be for any one of a number of reasons. It could be because the people feel like there's a disproportionate uh, split of the division of labor in the household. Somebody feels a little bit more resentful, like they always have to make the bed and clean the food out of the sink, and the other person never does those things. But maybe the other person feels like, I always have to clean the hair out of the drain, and I'm always walking the dog. You know, And then it beca- you know, those small things get magnified when you don't talk about them. 
for God's sake, can you please just clean the drain, the hair out of the drain? <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Sorry. Um, you know, or finances, you know, somebody, a stay at home mother, for example, maybe a stay at home mom is going out and, you know, she's not going to lavish dinners, but maybe she likes to buy that $35 bottle of wine once a week, right? It's one of the things she does. Husband really doesn't feel like $35 is an appropriate amount of money to spend on a bottle of wine. I mean, I'm sort of playing this out here, but does the husband say anything? Does he hold it in? Does he get resentful? What does he do with that discomfort? Most people don't talk about it. And if you're not talking about it, you're not having a productive and healthy relationship. The resentment builds and the relationship gets fractured. Magnolia, in terms of in terms of what you see, how has that shifted what you think about marriage and family? I really don't project. I don't take what I do in the office home with me. Um, I communicate. I'm a talker. I like to talk everything out. Um, and I think for, for my relationship that works, it hasn't really changed how I personally view marriage. Um, I think that there are dysfunctional people who get involved with other dysfunctional people, and that can be a recipe for a divorce. Um, But sometimes it just doesn't work. Uh, And that's maybe through no fault of the parties. You know, for whatever reason, they get married young, um, and they grow, and they grow into different people, and that doesn't necessarily result in an acrimonious divorce, but they're not right for each other. It's hard to imagine with all of that, the different energies that you encounter in a day, not to sound totally hippy-dippy, but right, like you're dealing with people that are really angry, you're dealing with people that are really upset, you're dealing with people that are feeling a lot of relief that their divorce is finally over or that they have some support in the process. I imagine it is hard to kind of keep that from absorbing completely, but it sounds like you're able to keep a healthy but permeable barrier as necessary. Yes. I also think that instrumental in that is having a office environment and a partner with whom I can be stressed with. And what I mean is, you know, if somebody, if one of us has an issue or has a particularly aggravating phone call or needs to bounce an idea off somebody, we can go and we go into each other's office. Um, and that create that de-stresses uh, a lot of the aggravation that can come from the perpetual issues that come up by the nature of what I do. Um, to feel to have a team here to be on the same side helps us manage what's coming in at us from clients and adversaries. Got it. So was that instrumental when you decided to strike out on your own? Was that a piece of it, like making sure that you were intentionally building the practice that you needed to have to support yourself? Yes, for sure. You are. And I think that's, you know, part of sort of the overall feeling as though, you know, I, I try to be, I try to communicate and compromise when I can, but really push back when I have to. And if there's not, if something doesn't feel right, it's not right, and it's up to me to make it right. And if that's whether or not that's by communicating or by going out and making it myself, you know, that's, that's what I've tried to do. I think that's important. I, I think, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, because 
I know a lot of the women listening are in different points of transition. And I know because we've been talking about marriage, I've sort of talked about some of my clients or even some of the people that I know that are listening to this show. Marriage is is a big transition that they are trying to figure out. But also a lot of the women that come to me, it's a, it's a career transition. How did you get to the place where you felt like you needed to make that leap and create this sort of dreamier structure for yourself? So I was actually quite happy um, where I, in the firm that I started out with, I was there for 12 years, um, but I felt as though something was missing. I mean, it was the only place I had ever worked and I really needed to leave the nest. You know, I got to leave home. And I did it in really good terms. And it took me a while. I mean, it took me about a year and a half to sign my footing before I started this firm with my partner. And all I could say is I knew in that interim period where, I mean, I worked straight through that I had not yet found what was right for me. And it was hard because I was at one place for less than a year and another place for less than a year. And on your resume, that can look, you know, there's a fear that jumping ship too soon may look bad, but there is something to following your instinct. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. And it's important to be able to pivot and land in a place where you're going to be productive. Um, and for me, one of the issues was I wanted to make sure that I could build my own practice. And I'm, you know, I think when the pieces fit, everything starts to work together to get you to that goal. And I think the, you know, one of the best decisions I made was listening to my instinct. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I would have just waited. Maybe I should, you know, or, or they may think maybe I should just wait. Maybe it'll get better. I suspect that if, it, if, you know, you're six months, seven months, eight months in, a year in, and it feels wrong, then it's wrong. And you have to do some thinking about what it is you want to get and how to get there. And maybe you are not, for the people whose careers are, are in transition, maybe the next job isn't going to be the job. But you want to think sort of two and three steps ahead. What's your dream job? Well, my dream job is I want to be a, an agent, a sports agent. Okay. Well, what do you do now? I'm an accountant. Okay. So maybe you, you're not going to get a job as a sports agent from being an accountant, but where can you work? What are some transitional places where you can get experience that you would need to become a sports agent? And I think if you think about it that way, it feels a little less overwhelming, right? You don't have to, your next job doesn't have to be the job. It just has to get you a step closer to where you want to be. Um, and even if it's getting out of a situation that where you feel uncomfortable or you know is not right for you, even just being able to leave and sort of leaping and having the net appear gives you confidence that you need to make those bigger decisions as you go. You said so much good stuff there. I feel like I have three different questions going in three different directions, but I really dig what you're talking about, about not putting all the pressure on yourself to have the next job that you transition to be your dream job. And I remember I had a few clients come to me with situations that 
where they were in some some place on the continuum in terms of career stuff. And I remember it came to me in like three, like it was like three people within a couple weeks span. And finally, I just made like a worksheet. And it was a bunch of questions, but I, I had them because I still think in like spreadsheets and columns, you know, it was sort of some <laughs> questions in one column. And then I had them do some writing and some homework around, you know, the next column was like their dreamy kind of flow work. You like the kind of work where they lose track of time and they're totally energized and it's what they want to be doing from like this really deep core level. You know, they're they're d- dialing into the instincts that you're talking about and really dreaming about what they want it to be, what they want their life to look like. But then also having a column for next work. So it's sort of like one column for mm-hmm. flow work and one column for next work. Because to your point, sometimes you have to play a little hopscotch to get there. Right, right. And I suppose one of the, I guess, one of the harder questions to answer for you in particular is, well, what do you do when you don't know what your dream work is? That's a really hard question. I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I wish I wish I did too. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm asking a lot of questions, you know, firing zillions of questions at people to get down to that. But I think what's also interesting in what you described and your story is you took some chances, right? Like you and I, from both of our different professional vantage points, know that hopping jobs under a year is can be kind of like the kiss of death if you ever want to be employed again. But it's also sometimes the most necessary thing or the necessary risk you have to take to really understand where it is that I, I want to go. I mean... Totally, totally. How did you balance that? Like the fear of like people are going to think I'm nuts and I'm not a professional or X, Y, Z other fallacy with how it was necessary for you? It was really hard. I am one of the most risk adverse people I've ever met. I mean, you know, I will get to the airport two hours before a domestic flight if I can stand to go to the movies on opening on the opening day, I will go like way early if there's no <laughs> reserved seating to make sure that I get a seat. I am really, really risk adverse. Uh, so it was really hard. I think um, it took me a while to leave the firms that where I sort of where I grew up, um, and that really was it was sort of listening to my instinct about the fit not being right. Um, and I remember struggling with this and talking to a friend of mine from high school who, who used that phrase that I had said before, which really stuck with me, which was leap and then net will appear. And I thought, you know, people do this all the time. I can do it too. And I'm just going to do it. You know, I've, I have, I feel as though I have enough colleagues I can rely on, um, and uh, enough experience I can just see what happens. And it was also, you know, the financial aspect is also stressful. It was multiple conversations I had with my husband about, can we afford this? What's the next year going to look like? How long could I go? You know, it, with if I had no clients walking in the door, um, it, fortunately that hasn't been an issue, but, you know, it really is stressful. And you just do have to leap 
and hope that net is going to appear. Yes. What helped you cope? Because there is that, like, you know, the the period from when you decide, like, okay, I'm really feeling the fear, it's backing up on me, and then recognizing I just have to take a leap and trust that the net will appear in front of me. That's not always, you know, Um, a 24-hour period or a seven-day period. What helped you on the daily take care of yourself so that you didn't just break apart? I think I made a real effort to get up. So I have two kids. They're six and seven now um, and a dog. And my kids get up early. Let's say they get up between 6 and 6.30. So early. But I would really make an effort to get up before then. Even whether it was to exercise, I mean, if I, on a good day, or even just to make the coffee and sit and read the New York Times on my phone, to just have half an hour of quiet time in the morning as the sun was rising to just to be with myself. Um, that I found was really helpful. Uh, it was a good way to manage the stress, you know, and also uh, talking about it. I, I'm a, I, I, as I said, I communicate, so I like to talk through everything. So if I was stressed, I talked about it. One thing I started to do recently, which I love, is I walk to work, and that has just sort of changed my day. I find actually on the mornings where I have to take the subway to work, I'm, I arrive sort of irritated and annoyed and sort of already beaten down a little bit by the New York City hustle. But on those mornings that I get to walk through Central Park to work, um, I find my days go pretty nicely. So is that something you now structure into your day whenever possible? Yes, yes. So I, if it's I drop my kids off at school or the campus picks them up, I put in my little earbuds and my walking shoes. And actually, I use that time now in the mornings. Um, It takes me about an hour to walk about 40 blocks or so. Um, I use that time to catch up with my friends. So I have a girlfriend who's a lawyer in Vermont, and she's usually starting her day dropping her daughter off at preschool. And it's a time to reconnect and catch up on our day-to-day in a world where I don't remember the last time I made a phone call to a pal. Um, there's just no time for it. I don't, you know, before I started these walks where I had an hour where it's just me and my feet, um, I would be on the subway or on the bus and not in a place where I could talk. And I remember growing up where my mom would have marathon conversations with her friends on the telephone. Uh, and that really has disappeared from our day-to-day lives. So we feel in a way we're farther apart from our friends and our emotional support than we ever were, I think, at any point in the history of our social lives. Uh, so it's really been an incredible way to reconnect. Um, I have a friend of mine also from high school who moved to Prague, and we just had an hour conversation this morning on the phone talking about, you know, our days you know, nothing big. It's not, so it was really nice. It's a nice way to have some time that's for you. That's amazing. That is so important in so many levels. I, I think so often people discount the health benefits of not being socially isolated. And 
to your point, even though we're walking around with these devices that have us connected to the internet and Facebook and social media and all this stuff, we are losing that essential connection that we have with people. Like, to your point, like, before you started walking, when was the last time you called a, a, a girlfriend to just catch up? Yeah, never. I mean, who has the time? Two kids, everybody's got kids and jobs and longer days. I mean, it just never happened. So cool that you are carving out this process for you. I have to ask because I'm always not not from a place of doomsday, but like when I hear something's working really, really well for people, how will you keep this going in the winter? Or are you going to have to succumb to the MTA? I started it in the winter. I started doing this walk in January. No so way. I've, I've done this walk. Yeah, so I've been doing this walk since January. I mean, you know, look, if it's pouring rain, I don't do it. If it's, you know, hot, I don't do it because I can't arrive here all sweaty. Um, but mostly, like, I bundle up. I wear a hat, I wear gloves, I wear a scarf, I got a long coat, and I wear sneakers or boots. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. Oh, fantastic. Way to go. I love this. Yeah, I know. I loved it too. <laughs> and Magnolia, how do you balance everything? Because to your point, like, you've got a husband, you've got two little girls at home, you also do some philanthropic work. So, you know, I know as a feminist, like, I sort of hear myself ask this question, but it's really coming from the intention of how can other women set themselves up to not let bullshit or burnout slow them down? And you are clearly someone who is not doing that or succumbing to that in any way. So what else helps you? Like you've mentioned your walk. What helps keep you balanced? What helps keep you moving forward? What helps keep you healthy? that you've, you've had to learn how to work in? I think having a bunch of balls in the air prevents me from suffering burnout. If I was doing one thing all day, all the time, I'd burn out. Who wouldn't? You know, if I left my house at 8.30 in the morning, took the subway to the office, sat here and did my job until 8 o'clock or 8.30 at night and went home, I think I'd probably be pretty unhappy. There have been points in my career where that's what I did, and I was pretty unhappy. I think you have to carve out time to spend with your family, to take care of yourself, even if it's leaving a little bit early and getting a manicure or a pedicure, um, sitting in time to do something that's just for you. Maybe it's that manicure or pedicure. Maybe it's a walk to work. Maybe it's um, getting up a little early and exercising or go walking the dog. I think when you... Give yourself the ability to do those things. You don't burn out as much because you're doing, you're not doing one thing exclusively. And, and I think you're finding things to do that are important to you. So I'm really active in the New York Women's Bar Association. I really like that organization. Um, and it gives me pleasure to do that work. It's not work I get paid for, but it's, it's a nice offset to maybe, you know, arguing with an adversary over an issue in, in one of my cases. It's just a nice way to be around other people. And I think it's, it, it can be really difficult when you don't have a job that allows you that kind of flexibility. So it sounds like you also have a pretty packed day. Like you have a lot of fle- flexibility, but you also have a lot going on. 
how do you know when enough is enough? Well, I listen to my body. So, you know, yesterday I just had a day where I was in back-to-back meetings and phone calls and taking care of some of the items on my to-do list that might not be, that were difficult for a variety of reasons. And at the end of the day, I just felt wiped. Um, What did I do? I had a beer. (laughs) Sometimes it's just as easy as, as having a beer and sitting down and, you know, closing your eyes for a second. Um, other than that, I really try to then keep, if there are days where I am really losing it, I really try the next day to carve out some space for myself. I'll give you an example. I'm in the middle of a trial right now, and I, I came home one day from court, and I got home a little bit earlier because the court day ends earlier than my office day would, and I went straight home. And my kids had been, were at home and they had gotten home from camp. And within like a minute of my walking in, they were fighting. They were angry <laughs> at me about something ridiculous. And you know what? I said, I'm done. So I walked into, I changed my clothes. I put on like a super comfortable dress and flip-flops. I went into the kitchen. I poured a beer in a to-go cup. <laughs> and I went to the and I went to the nail salon and I got a pedicure and a thirty minute neck massage. And that was just what I did. I like your Chico cup too. <laughs> right, right. And in all fairness, it was a cup that said, "There's a chance this may be have wine in it on the side of it." So I, you know, I was full disclosure. Hey, totally New York possible PD. walking around with booze, with booze, <laughs> with booze in my cup, but. You know, I, it was like my kids were a total pain, and I just had to call it. You know, it's like, well, I should be spending this time with my kids. I've been putting in some late hours. You know what? Nope, 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 not doing this. I'm not having these fights. I'm not subjecting myself. I'm going to take care of myself. I'll see you guys in about an hour and a half. And I came back, and I was in a great mood, and they were had recovered, and we were all good. <laughs> I love it that you know your limits so well. That's a fantastic story. I guess one of the things that comes up, you've mentioned in a couple different places in our conversation today, listening to your intuition and then, you know, sort of listening to your body. I know this is going to be kind of a, a strange question, and you might not be able to answer it. I feel like my 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 batting average is probably like, maybe 400 on this in terms of that seems high isn't that well no pretty well i guess it's high for baseball but if you think of 400 as 40 percent of the time people can answer it is where i'm sort of going oh fine okay (laughs) i don't know baseball so it sounded high to me but okay (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. so this is a strange question but how do you listen to your body listen to your intuition like What's the process for you? Is it something really natural or are there things that you have to do to be able to move the static out of the, out of the way to hear the, the whispers? I'm good now at sensing when I have a doubt and, and sort of and allowing that doubt to kind of rise to the surface and teasing it out a little bit to see if there's a valid reason for it. Um, the first time, I mean, I didn't really, I don't think I trusted myself 
until about with to listen to these doubts until I was a parent. And I remember my daughter was a couple weeks old, my older one, and I felt her forehead and she felt like she had her she felt a little hot. And I ignored it. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm sure I'm just making it up. You know, her cheeks feel okay. And when I went, I, I like touched her a little bit later. I thought, yeah, she's, she's really hot. No, I'm just, and I didn't, and I ignored it. And sure enough, when I ultimately took her temperature later, she had a pretty high fever. And I thought, that's the mother's instinct kicking in. And if I can sort of tap into whatever that nagging sensation is, I wonder what will happen next time. And next time something happened and I got that kind of little nag feeling, whether it's like a little pit in the stomach or a little whisper in my head, and I, follow, I followed the thread, I pulled the thread, and it, whatever it was, I was right about. And I have that sense, I, I, that sense comes up also in the context of my job and what I do. Somebody, a client I'm working with tells me something and it doesn't, maybe the bell doesn't go off right away, but it sort of sits, something they've said doesn't sit right or some, something's not sitting right. Well, why isn't it sitting right? Well, let's think it through. What's going on? What are the other issues that we're dealing with and why wouldn't this sit right? Oh, it's because of X, Y, and Z. So I found that when that thread appears, it's a good idea to pull on it. Yes. I've never found an occasion where that kind of thread that you're talking about, where pulling it has led to something unraveling. It, it always has led to something really interesting. How do you, right. how do you process it? Like when you say pull the thread, it's different strokes for different folks. So this is definitely like, what's your style? Like, are you someone, like, do you go for a walk and you're kind of just cogitating on it? Or is it you explore it through journaling or writing or a process like that? How, you mentioned the word that, like, when you when you see this thread, like, sort of teasing it out. What does that look like? And how would we recognize it? So for me, if somebody says or does something, and I either have a it strikes me the wrong way or a little switch in my head goes off and I can't connect it to anything. So though, you know, it's, if I can connect it to something and, and, and then, then it's obvious, right? Um, the sky's blue or the sky's orange. Well, no, it's not, it's blue. You've connected that, but um, something a little bit less obvious and direct switch goes off, but you're not sure what light that switch is connected to. I usually just acknowledge that the has gone off and I leave it because I think once I acknowledge it, it sort of, then it hovers and it sort of stays in my mind someplace and I let it come to the surface as it naturally would. And then when it comes to the cert, when it surfaces is when I'm usually able to connect it. Uh, and that might be an hour later. That might be at three o'clock in the morning when I roll over and I go, Oh my gosh, I got it. I got to write this down. <laughs> write this down. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I sleep with my phone by my bed. So I pick up my phone and email myself. 
uh, you know, three words. And then I, then I can roll over and go back to sleep because I've, like, I've connected it. And sometimes where I, I let it sit and maybe the issue doesn't surface or I don't connect it so obviously, um, then maybe I will carve out time to think about it. Maybe that'll be something that I do on my walk and I really have to force myself to connect it logically to any one of a number of issues that are floating around. I know that's abstract, but that's, that's my process. I usually, if I acknowledge it and let it, and let it sit in the ether of my mind and emerge naturally, I, it usually connects to something. Yes. I 150,000% can relate to everything that, that you're talking about. And I, I I definitely recognized I was talking to someone who's quite intuitive. You know, I, th I think sometimes people think like if you're a if you're an attorney or if you're a CPA that like you might not have this intuitive kind of spidey sense, but it it sounds like you definitely are that person. And I want to thank you for kind of sharing a little bit about what that looks like for you because I I think it shows up differently. And I, I think it's so important for women listening to hear that there was a point in your life you didn't trust it. And then you had this experience with your daughter and being a mom. Totally. And like having it be like hitting you over the head with a frying pan. Like, trust me, I'm your yes. intuition. Yes. <laughs> yes, totally. I mean, it reminds me of the time, you know, like if the hair is on the back of your neck or standing up or something doesn't feel right, you have to trust it. It's your subconscious telling you that something is not right, and if you're and and you gotta listen to it and follow it. Um, you know, I, excuse me. I learned early on to sort of follow those kinds of. Life is easier if you learn the lesson once, and then just do it every time, <laughs> than if you spend your life ignoring the lessons you repeatedly learn. Um, but I think if you listen to it. And don't ignore it. It will lead you in the right direction. Don't yes. you think so? Yes. And, you know, I think we all have to learn that at, at different points. It, you know, I like that you're talking about like, just being open to that and open to hearing the messages. I think for a better part of my formative years and probably into my early 20s, I so... Like, if that message was not convenient to what I had going on, I was kind of like, no, 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 no. Thanks, intuition, but no. And inevitably, life, I always think of the universe as kind of like an old-timey salesperson, right? Like, where the, if the universe wants to deliver you a message, it is going to get the message through to you, and there is no stopping it. And I think, you know... You know what I say? I say, I use the phrase, the universe is conspiring in your favor. Ooh, dig. I really dig that. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The it's universe a good way to think about it. Is, yeah, the universe is going to get heard. Like, it'll knock lightly on your door and so, sort of say, like, you know, hello, Kara, are you in there? Or hello, Magnolia, are you in there? I have a message for you. And then, you know, for me, it it was a long process of... The universe had to knock a little louder. The universe had to knock even louder. Then the universe was just like kicking in my door and having some existential funk 
sent in my direction to get my attention. Like the mm-hmm. lesson was going to be had. And it sounds like you've had a peaceful transition to it. Yes. And I think also opening your, your mind to the fact that the message may not be delivered in the way you are expect to receive it. The universe can, you know, let's say it's like, oh, I really, I, I really want that job. That is the job that I want. You don't get the job. But, you know, you do get a message on LinkedIn from a friend of yours who's been out of touch for a while and wants to have lunch. You don't necessarily connect that with a job, but perhaps that person is, is the link for you on, on the next step of your journey. That person will introduce you to somebody who's going to put you in touch with, you know, the job or the guy or, um, you know, whatever your career goal is. I think you really do have to be open to the universe sending you messages, maybe not in the most overt ways. And, and, and following that thread. Yes. How have you stayed open, right? Like, you're talking to someone who deeply believes that we are all very much interconnected in this web of life and that, you know, applying for the job and not getting it, but then having this friend reach out and say, hey, we, let's, let's catch up. Let's see what's going on in each other's lives could totally be this unexpected opportunity. Have you always had that trust? No, 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 no. I, I don't think I would even, no, no. I think that just comes with time and experience, uh, sort of putting my faith in the universe. It's, it's so cheesy, but it, it is true. I mean, you were talking about the universe before and being an old-timey salesman. You know, I have, this is silly, but I have found that when I sort of send a message out into the universe about something that I really want or need or hope for, it shows up in some bizarre way. And, and, and I think maybe because I've identified what it is that I, I hope for or I want in, a, in enough of a way to sort of say, universe, this is really what I need, then I can, I, I'm, maybe I'm more open to identifying it in different forms that it may come to me. Yes. And have you found that sometimes the forms it comes in are the things that are scary or you're feeling some sort of resistance towards, right? Like where the the action you need to take is the hardest one. <laughs> yes. So when I left my um, the first firm I started at, the last thing I ever wanted was to, ha- was to have my own firm. Not <laughs> even interested. And now it's the best decision I ever made. I mean, I couldn't be... I, I'm so happy with where I am and what we're doing. And so, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get <laughs> what you need. I have written that in so many cards to friends over the years, like when they're in this like really funky spot and like life seems to be just handing them a shit sandwich. And it's like, this might not be what you want, but this might be exactly like what you need and where you need to be. Like you Yeah, are... nobody wants to hear that, that though when they're <laughs> eating a shit sandwich. <laughs> nobody wants to think that that's what they need. But sometimes it is. 
I mean, sometimes you really have to, to sort of go to the deepest, darkest place in order for you to understand and what it is you want and for your priorities and, and desires to be crystallized, right? Because if you're happy and complacent, that doesn't put you in a position to strive to, to become successful. It just makes you more complacent. If you're in a place where you are really unhappy, you really are really are focusing then on what it is you want to make you happy. And once you crystallize that set of goals and desires, and every step you take after that gets you closer to, to that list. Yes. I mean, I, I feel that way on a project that I'm working on right now, where I'm trying to collect 33,000 handwritten task lists from women. And it just started kind of like you were you were talking about, like it was just this little thread. Like I kept dreaming about it at night. I kept waking up in the morning thinking, oh, I, I, could, I could take this action on that. Or, you know, it just, it was this idea that just kept visiting me, visiting me and visiting me. And I've definitely done some work to unpack like where it came from or why I might be motivated to do this. But it's it's definitely one of those projects right now in my life where it doesn't make me any money. In fact, it's probably costing me a little bit of money. And it's something that I just keep getting called to do. And so I can't devote but, all... Does it interest you? Oh, my God. It's so passionate. Like, there's so much passion around it. I mean, if I could do that you know, work on it every day. And, you know, I am my own boss. So, you know, some days I can devote an hour or two to it. And other days, you know, I can take a 15 minute action step on it. But it's one of those things I I can't fully explain like where it's going to go or where it's going to take me. But I definitely feel like that, that, that pull you're describing, like the thread is there. I just have to keep pulling on it. (laughs) And Quite honestly, even if it doesn't lead somewhere that seems obviously useful, the fact that you derive joy from it, that it's interesting to you, has a value. And just because you don't make money from that doesn't discount the value that it brings. If it brings you a level of satisfaction and, the, and happiness and um, uh, relaxation, let's say, and you're able then to take a more relaxed, happier version of yourself and apply it to the work that you do to get paid. And that can't, that can only have a beneficial effect. Oh, absolutely. That's why it's going back to the issue, the question you had asked me about sort of how, what do I do to avoid the, the burnout and the BS? That's why I think having those balls in the air really helps. Because if you're doing something you like, even if it's not um, for financial gain, that's going to impact the other areas of your life, the ones that maybe you are more concerned about for financial gain. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just this creative pull. But, you know, I think, and I, I love that you kind of opened up this portal in this conversation, because I think you know, our tendency as a culture is to sort of talk about things when we've made the jump, right? Like, it's easier for you to talk about the trials and tribulations of taking a couple jobs that didn't fit quite right to get 
to define and crystallize like what would be a good fit for you and what would feel right for you mm-hmm. in terms of your career. And and me sort of talking about this project, a, a lot of times we only are comfortable talking about that after the fact. And so I think it's important for people to hear like at different points in the process, like you, if you are feeling this, this pull, like with all your being, and I wish people could see me as I was saying it, like I sort of rounded over the mic and, and like, literally like curled up, like when you're feeling that attraction, you're feeling just that pull to find some way to start digging into it. Like, and whether that's just Mm -hmm. like thinking about it while you're going for a walk or taking some concrete action, like leaving your firm, your first firm after 12 years, like that's a mind boggling change, like in the moment, but recognizing, you know, from your story and like, you'll live to tell about it. Like if you follow that thread, if you start to pull it, you will live to tell about it. Not only will you live to tell about it, your life might be fucking awesome for having done that. <laughs> yeah, it, it look, and also it builds character, right? It, to be able to identify when something isn't working and say, look, it just didn't work. I knew, you know, I gave it my best shot, but it really wasn't working. It wasn't a good fit. I think that there's some honor and some dignity in, in owning that. Um, and I think facing your fear is a, is a particularly exhilarating um, experience. Uh, to, to do something you've never thought you could do, because guess what? You can, you'll, you'll be able to do it, and then you'll be on the other side of it, that much stronger and more confident, and that may put you in the position to really get to where you want to be. And that's true for work. That's true for relationships. That's true for um, you know, side projects you're thinking about. It, it really applies throughout life. Yes. That is such great advice. That is such amazing advice. And Magnolia, this may seem like a, a little bit of a different turn, but there are some questions that I like to ask everyone. And I really want to start with how would you define being a modern woman? I think it's a combination. I think it's asking for what you want, compromising when you can, and not getting pushed around. And really sort of not letting anybody push you around and not caring what people think. I really, I think there has to be an element of compromise, but also standing standing tough. So knowing that is your working definition of being a modern woman, what would you most like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Give more of a shit about? um, Owning up to what they really want. You know, if it's, if it's to have a career and not be bogged down by the pressures of children and family, then just owning that. If it's a, an educated woman who's gone through years of, of school who decides really that what she wants to do is, is be a stay-at-home parent, then just own it. Uh, I guess maybe giving less of a shit about what anybody else thinks and doing 
what makes you feel good and what you feel instinctively is right for you. Got it. What's helped you give less of a shit? I mean, to be honest, I still give a shit. Fair <laughs> I'm enough. Not, I'm not going to pretend like I am somebody who I am deeply aware of what other people think. And it is hard for me to disregard that. I often make decisions based on consensus. I like to know what the people, the important people in my life think about something big that I'm mulling over. But ultimately, I sort of take that and then I make my decision and I live with it. Because I think, I think you're right. And I, th I think I appreciate, I, I don't think I appreciate your honesty. I do appreciate your honesty. Because I think it is something that women struggle with. And, and maybe it's because I talk to women all the time. Maybe men struggle with this just as much as women, but I happen to talk to women. I wish I had an answer about how to do that better, but I mean, I, th I think just us starting to have conversations like this are important. I don't know. What do you think? I think back to your, your comment earlier, uh, or what we were talking about earlier, which was sort of uh, you're having a sense of when your intuition trying to tell you something. I mean, it really is about drowning out all the noise, uh, or, or sort of tuning it out, rather. You know, we're told to lean in. We're told to lean out. We're told to <laughs> breastfeed. We're told to formula feed. Um, we're told to focus on our career and not be dependent on a man. We're told to make a nice home. Um, there, we are told that there's a certain way our body should look, that there's a certain way our clothes should fit, there's a certain way our hair and skin should look. We are constantly being barraged with others' views of how we should be in, our, in every aspect of our lives. And I think part of the, the key to successfully... Uh, success is a relative term and it's subjective, but to having a fulfilling life is to be able to drown out all of that noise and focus in on what your gut, what your instinct is telling you about how you want to be and what you want to do and how you want to dress and how you want to work and live and the kind of life you want to have. Yes. And not only are we, it's a deluge. It's not even like these opinions are trickling in. Like in this day and age with all the ways that come at us, you know, just even from like this big cultural perspective, like just watching TV is, you know, a big, like a big download of how we should be and what we should look like and, and all of those things that you mentioned. And then like social media and that, I mean, it's just, it's never ending. So I don't right. know. I just, I feel like the pressure of this is, is building. And like I said, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think we just have to keep asking the question, you know, and, and checking mm -hmm. in with ourselves. And, like, and do I need to keep, give a shit about this opinion? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and having dialogues about it, talking, talking it out communicating. I think that's part, that's really part of this. Yes. Yes. And Magnolia, I know you are a super busy woman, so I I just have two questions left. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? Like I know we've sort of zoomed all over and different topics and we've talked about work and we've talked about intuition. But what do you most want the listeners of this show to know 
I suppose one of the thing that I would have wanted to know, um, I mean, and I'm, this is just from my, from my recent experience, is that even when it seems as though the rug's being pulled out from under you, it seems as though your relationship isn't working right the right way, your job doesn't feel right, you have control and power. And you have the ability to remove yourself. Either you can commute by communicating, by leaving the job, and that you really have to listen to what your instinct says. Because that gut, that second sense, is going to ultimately, I believe, guide you to where you need to be. And I think if, if everybody started listening to their intuition, overall satisfaction and happiness rates would probably be higher. I think they'd skyrocket. <laughs> yes, that is such a great message. Thank you. And Magnolia, if women want to learn more about you and your work, and I'll definitely have all the links and, and whatnot in the show notes, but what is, what is your preferred way of being contacted? Um, email is great. My email is my first name, Magnolia, at lopretolevy.com. Awesome. Easy peasy. Again, I am so grateful that you took this time to be here. And I think there's so much that's going to resonate with a lot of the people listening. So really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. This was such an awesome conversation. Yep. It was my pleasure. It's so nice to be able to have an open conversation about um, the difficult aspects of our life and and what we've sort of used to get us through them. And, you know, if anybody can learn anything from it, well, isn't that the best? Yeah, right? Well, it takes two, and it, it certainly takes the guests on this show to show up and be willing to be honest and I mean, I know when I was sort of explaining what the show was about and things like that, I used the term, it's a pedestal-free zone. Because I think so often we're so busy, like, projecting all this stuff onto other people. So thank you for showing up, stepping down off the pedestal, getting real with us. And You're really, so welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure to do it. everyone this is Kara again thank you so much for listening and dropping by Le Vital Core Salon this show wouldn't be a show without you listening so I deeply appreciate it and want to thank you and if you've made it to this point in the interview there was probably some nugget in here that inspired you or educated you or made you think of things from a different perspective and if that was what you got out of it. One, I'm super grateful. And two, don't be stingy with that. If it's something that you think would inspire another woman in your life, please pass the link to the episode on. You can always find a blog post at levitalcoresalon.com. So it's L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S.com. Because Sharing is caring, and as cliche and ridiculous as that little marketing soundbite sounds, it's really true. Like, 
I know when I'm listening to podcasts or reading a newsletter or email or something like that, I'm constantly sharing things with someone that I think the idea might resonate with. And you have no idea what that little act of kindness can do for people, especially someone that's feeling some fear in transition or bumping up against some of the issues that Magnolia and I talked about today. So please, tell a friend. It doesn't have to be this big, formal, or hard process. Just flip them a link. Send them a text message. But you can always find the links to all the shows, as I said, at levitalcoursalon.com. And if this show inspired you and you want to be reminded about future shows, the best thing that you can do is sign up for the newsletter. Not only do I try to provide little nuggets of health and lifestyle motivation and support and advice and encouragement, but also each newsletter is going to feature the latest podcast and who it is and all the links to jump over to it really quickly. So you can also find that on the website, levitalcoresalon.com, by just scrolling to the bottom of the page. And before I skedaddle for the day, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer, Craig Snyder. Not only is he cute, he is a wonderful producer and helps my guests and I sound professional. And all of those things that we don't notice until they're off with a podcast, like when one guest is really super loud and the other you can barely hear and it's sonically crazy... Craig makes all that disappear for me, and I deeply appreciate the work that he does and the time that he puts in to to make my guests and I sound great. So, Craig, if you're listening, thank you. Everyone else, give him a pat on the back virtually. He's doing a great job. And I also want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing the awesome theme song, and the High Dials are the ones that perform it, so thanks to the High Dials for making it come to life. Because I listen to the theme song and I love it. It's part of my running soundtrack and it makes me feel excited to hear the show and hopefully you notice that small detail as well. As always, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down. See you next time.